Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right, everybody, welcome back. Thanks for joining us on episode four of the podcast. Can't believe we're already on episode four. Um, if you guys joined us uh, last uh, last time, we were talking about God, talking about the proof of God, why we believe God exists, kind of laying down some of the, the, the framework for the, the Christian belief in God. And um, yeah, what say we uh, talk us some Jesus uh, tonight? Sounds glorious. <clears throat> Yeah, so uh, Zach and and Robert, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for joining. Um, so uh, so Jesus, uh, what what's up with that guy? <laughs> All right, so uh, one of the biggest obstacles when we talk about Jesus, let alone, I mean, miracles, uh, everything he said that was hard to digest. I mean, the very basics that people still get hung up on are the, the mere historicity of Jesus. Did he really exist? Um, is he somebody who actually set foot into time, or is this just a fictional character that the church rose up in the Middle Ages in order to gain power? Um, I've talked to people all over the spectrum. Some people believe that he was just a fictional character. Some people believe he was real, but uh, nevertheless, he was just somebody who preached good things, and other people elevated him too much to get power for themselves. And so it's really important before you go any farther, uh, historicity of Jesus. Did he exist, and did he really do and say the things that the Gospels claim that he did? Because, Mm -hmm. uh, like it or not, the best source we have about Jesus, 95% of anything anybody knows about him, come from the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And people claim that those are too biased because the people who wrote them followed him and loved him dearly. And so they're not going to want to say anything that might put him in a bad light. But the question isn't necessarily, is it biased? Because bias can be in every piece of information, but it doesn't necessarily muddle the information itself. Something could be totally true and yet reported by someone who has a bias. Everyone does. It's a human Mm -hmm. thing to have a bias. And so what does uh, anything, is there anything else that corroborates what the Gospels have to say about him? Because it's nice to take everything at face value that the Gospels say, mm-hmm. but of course most people who didn't grow up in church, that's not very easy for them to just do right off the bat. But the good news is there's plenty of evidence to say that Jesus definitely existed. Nobody, and I, I mean literally nobody, who seriously sincerely studies history, uh, actually believes that Jesus was fictional. The only people who believe it, ironically, are people who didn't actually look into it or go with it with such a strong bias that they're committed to the idea of a fictional Jesus no matter what they find. 
So what has convinced people so much that Jesus was a real man? So, of course, you got to step outside the four Gospels. He, everything in there could have happened just as reported, but what is behind that? And so uh, one of the biggest sources we have is a man who was not Christian. He was not a Christian man, but he lived close enough to the time period to be able to report things accurately. It's a man named Flavius Josephus. Um, he was actually considered a traitor by many because he was Jewish, who a Jewish man who lived during the time of Rome, just like Jesus did. Um, he actually ended up having a lot of loyalty to Rome. So it was kind of like a tax collector in Jesus' day. They would actually come to Rome in order to get benefits for themselves. And Josephus, he wasn't a tax collector, but he has a similar story with Rome. So people actually in that time who were Jewish along with him, many of them counted him as a traitor. But he actually reports on the history of the Jews, and it's actually a classic if anyone wants to go and buy this thing or look for it online actually wrote for Roman audiences, telling them everything that the Jewish people had gone through. Now, this was a man who did believe the Old Testament, the Jewish Tanakh. And so his writings start at creation, carry through Moses and uh, all the stories of the Old Testament, but then he eventually lands in the first century. And so he talks about people like Herod the Great. He talks about Tiberius Caesar. He talks about all these people. And all of a sudden, in the uh, a reference in Josephus, brings up the sentence, there was around this time a wise man named Jesus. And he'll actually describe a great many things that the Gospels attest to him. So what we get from him, if nothing else, is the simple assertion that there was a Jesus who existed. This man Josephus, who lived in ancient days, was able to testify to that. There was a, a man named John the Baptist who rose up out of nowhere just before Jesus went public. And Jesus wandered around, preached, and this uh, man comes through history, and even the ancients knew his name. And of course, there are also sources that are dead against Jesus that actually add more to this. Now, Josephus was more neutral. He didn't really have bone to pick with Jesus or for Jesus. Jesus, to him, was just another Messiah figure, and there were many. But, uh, is that yeah, uh, one thing that I would like to say that there are some uh, skeptics that like to um, that, that kind of muddy the waters with uh, the the text Flavius Josephus, um, saying that you know like how he he kind of elevates Jesus so much that a lot of people well not a lot of people but there are some scholars that will go oh well that's clearly the the Christian Church inserting these things into the text. And that's really an argument from silence, um, basically, like kind of like um, they're saying that, oh, the text really uh, exemplifies or really lifts up Jesus, kind of talks about him a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because Christians at some point in history changed his work and, and including these, and, you know, elevating Jesus. But the problem with that is there's no evidence for it. It's, it's a great theory, but until you actually have um, uh, an actual text where this information about Jesus or whatever isn't there, you can't make that claim without, you know, actually establishing establishing this actual addition, I guess you could call it. 
Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, moving on from Josephus, um, we've got him as a neutral source, and yeah, he does definitely praise Jesus. He has respect for him. It's respect from a distance. And then you go to stuff that's totally hostile to Jesus. You have sources from Romans themselves, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, Jewish leaders, who they weren't people who condemned Jesus directly, but they were part of the same group, the same little line of philosophy. There's a section in there. Uh, there's a writing. Um, I'll start with the Jewish one. There's a writing called the Talmud. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with that stuff, there's no introduction needed. But easiest way to introduce it to people who've never heard about it is basically it was an ancient Jewish study Bible written by the rabbis of the day. And by of the day, I mean first century up through third, fourth, or fifth century rabbis commenting on the Old Testament text. There are even some uh, verses that actually pertain to their own time, rabbis commenting on their own lifetimes or very recently beforehand. And there's a section in the Talmud that actually uh, mentions a man named Yeshua, and I only go to the trouble of bringing that name up instead of Jesus's direct name, because if anyone out there is brave enough to Google any of these sources, um, it'll talk about Yeshua. Now, of course, Yeshua is the Aramaic version of Jesus in Latin. Uh, basically, to help describe it to newer people to this idea, my name is Robert, but if I go down to Mexico, according to their language and their culture, you could transcribe my name to Roberto. And uh, I have a lot of Hispanic friends who call me that. But uh, you have that idea of an Aramaic name is Yeshua is what he went by when he was living and breathing. And then uh, the Latin of the Catholic Church made Jesus transcribed to become the, the one that's most well known to us. And so in the Talmud, it talks about Yeshua. Don't let the, that name change slip you by because these people who were against Jesus very ones who condemned him to death, if not the individuals, I mean the people in the same philosophical school of people, the people who actually condemned him to crucifixion, they write down and mention a man named Yeshua who hung on a tree, which is just uh, a way of saying crucified, it was common back then to call it that, around Passover, around that time. And so what's interesting is, of course, that could have just been a coincidence, a man named Yeshua crucified, but it actually says that one of his big um, charges, one of the things levied against him by the Pharisees who wrote it, is that this was a dark wizard who uh, performed sorcery against the people. Now, oh, wow. Yeah. Now talk about bias. Now I said everything has bias. Now some bias is so biased it's like acid. So you have people... Um, a modern example, the news. Um, every piece of news you can get, if you're not careful, will be very biased in a bipartisan manner. So anything a politician does or says will depend on where they stand, and the way that's reported could depend on where the newscaster stands. I'll take that example, um, and now this is much more sharp than our bipartisanism. I'm just using that to help connect with uh, people listening to, to today, but Basically, take that idea of bias and apply that to the Pharisees, the people who condemned Jesus. And you got to remember, they hated him. So what can you get from what they wrote is this dark sorcerer, this Yeshua, or Jesus, was crucified in part because he was doing things that people could not explain. 
was making their hair stand on end. But they were brave mm. enough to try to nail him to wood anyway. And, of course, the gospel accounts say that this Jesus was so mild and meek that he was willing, he wi- he was willing to allow that to happen to him for the better good. Yet you have this source, this, this strong bias. Um, there are some others that talk about, um, and Zach, if you can remember who this is, uh, jump in with me. But there is a Roman, um, I want to say it's one of the Plinies. Pliny the Younger, I believe. Pliny the Younger definitely mentions him, and I'm trying to remember if Pliny's this exact example. If not, um, Google can be your best friend for those out there listening. <laughs> um, but basically what he mentions is uh, he vents some frustration about the modern Christians of his day, and by his day I'm talking like generation right after the book of Acts. And so he is talking about these Christians that won't go away, no matter what Rome tries to get rid of them and squash them and discredit them so that their hearts will go back to the emperor. But he actually mentions this Christus, which is another transcribed word, Christ. This Christus shows up, runs his mouth, and now all these followers can't be got rid of. And so he, again, confirms the existence of a Christ figure behind the Christians. And he talks about this man as if he were real. And again, this is an ancient source. He would have been very, very close to the event described on Easter, close enough to where no legend could have possibly formed. So we have these outward sources. They go from neutral to hostile to downright demonic attack against this man, this Yeshua, who walked the streets of Palestine in the first century A.D. And they all confirm, one, that he was real, Uh, That Talmud reference by people who hated him and had every reason to discredit him accidentally, indirectly confirmed that he did some spooky stuff. And now the church has risen, and you have this Roman, I believe it was Pliny the Younger, I believe that, um, off the top of my head, who says that now they can't be gotten rid of, and they're all dying to hold on to this claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. What are we, Rome, possibly going to do about it? <laughs> and you piece this stuff together, and someone who is skeptical can try to, to explain what happened with the resurrection and deeper discussion of that's for another episode. But one thing they can't deny, no matter how against Christianity they might be, if they study history authentically and take a look at the first century accounts and everything that we can possibly muster around what happened that time in that part of the world there was a Jesus who could do some things and somehow he alone even though he was homeless had no influence politically he changed the entire world starting with a tiny group of people mm. and that kind of sums up what I have to say about the history historicity of Jesus in a nutshell um, if Zach has anything to add before he jumps to his half of it he's welcome to do so well you know um, the talking about a, a a figure that existed over two millennia ago and and robert just you know talks about three sources you know it's like how many sources does there have to be to gen to um actually prove that a figure existed because we're not talking about the scriptures yet that's that's the next part that i'm going to talk about a little bit You've got 
people who are uh, Roman. You've got people who are um, Jewish. Another great um, uh, source is Tacitus. Tacitus even affirms resurrection indirectly. He doesn't call it that, but he says, calls it a superstition, a rose. And now this is someone, again, who's not a Christian, who um, is kind of like bad-mouthing it, but at the same time, he's, 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 he's indirectly verifying that this actually happened. I mean, it's like if you had one primary source from two millennia ago talked about this, but we have, I mean, at least off the top of my head, Rob, between the Talmud, between Je- Flavius Josephus, Johnny the Younger, um, Tacitus, that's four. I mean, how many extra biblical accounts do you need to verify that someone actually existed indirectly uh, prove um, these things in Scripture? How much more do you need, you know? And even if... Uh... <clears throat> Even if that's not enough for people, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't even Islam acknowledge that Jesus was a real person? Uh, And Islam is about as far anti-Christian as you can go, um, but they even acknowledge that he was a real person, if if I'm not mistaken. Do, uh, they definitely do. one thing that makes uh, scholars of religion scratch their heads a little bit is the Quran, the, the main Muslim text, will actually talk about Jesus almost as much as Muhammad. And, of course, they take bad interpretation of who Jesus is. But you know, with all the love and respect towards Muslim people that I can muster, uh, just looking at the way the Quran as a text tackles the topic of Jesus the person Basically, what they interpret it as, what what their take of what happened is that um, Jesus actually, uh, I don't want to say he deceived the people. I want to say, how do I want to say it? Basically, they say that the the actual crucifixion event was basically a mirage. Um, Unless I'm mistaken, I believe it was Judas. Who really hung from the cross? I think I think that is their opinion. I'm, I'm uh, not yeah, I think so. And actually, what it is is their culture trying to honor Jesus, because uh, they thought since it is dishonorable for anybody, especially a, a leader of a religious movement, someone who they believe is God's own prophets, the Quran actually says this is the Messiah. They just interpret that word differently than Christians do. They believe it would actually dishonor Jesus to admit that he actually had to suffer that pain because they don't have the concept of sin and salvation that we do because of the the blood of the lamb. But uh, they said that uh, Judas hung on the cross for Jesus so that Jesus could ascend and attain the glory that Allah had for him. What they believe is that at the end of time, now Christians believe that at the end of time Jesus will come back and reign over the whole world without any equal. Muslims actually say that Jesus will come down with Muhammad and Jesus will actually advocate for the Islamic interpretation of things. Basically, they'll say that we have missed the boat. Uh, Muhammad was the final prophet. He, Jesus, was just one more step in that. But yeah, like you said, even with that interpretation, uh, they respect him and they love him. But they will say that Jesus definitely existed and they'll even say that he was one of God's divine part of God's divine plan in coming. 
they never try to uh, discredit it. And Islam comes into play 500 years down the road from Jesus, the physical flesh and blood Christ. And 500 years down the road, you have uh, Muhammad, the prophet, who rose up and started Islam as we know it. And he never tried to deny the existence of Jesus. Actually, he tried to take the name and leverage it to advance his own movement and philosophy. Um, now I'm going to pass it on to Zach. He's actually going to tackle uh, the next little topic in our logical step. Yeah, so Robert kind of tackled um, the extra-biblical sources. And, and what I'm going to talk about is, you know, obviously the Gospels and the New Testament, you know, that is um, the, the canon and all that. Those are huge topics that, you know, that you can honestly, you can find books on and things like that. And But what I'm going to do is kind of dial it back a little bit and speak specifically, if I can say that word without, you know, slumbering over the word. Um <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Uh, it's that southern drawl. Um, but, uh, you know, if you think about like the disciples themselves, like these people um, existed at the same time as Jesus, we a lot of times I think kind of like uh, we kind of we don't really think about all the things they gave up. So, I mean, obviously there's that belief, that the faulty belief that, you know, whenever the disciples, uh, uh, after the resurrection, they somehow gain some sort of power and political power and blah, 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 blah. You know, that that's a false view. I mean, the reality of it is that these disciples, I mean, with the exception of John, who died at an old age in Ephesus, I mean, they all were martyred for their faith with the exception of the betrayer, Judas, who hung himself. Um, these guys gave up everything. And, and you know, we focus a lot on you know, the fact that Peter, James, John, and Andrew were fishermen. And we kind of treat them like the, the hillbilly of our day. Like, oh, they, they weren't educated and this and that. And, you know, God can use them and he can use us. Well, you know, there is an element of that because they're not the actually established religious elite. At the same time, these were Jewish men who knew Bible, you know, specifically the Old Testament. Their entire culture entire everything that they thought about what religion was and what God was and even what the Messiah would be changed dramatically in in this when Jesus comes on stage you have a tax collector a tax collector Matthew who betrayed his own people so that he could you know get all the comforts that he could have in the first century you know Israel and and Jesus calls him to be his disciple. You have Simon the Zealot. I mean, I think we've talked about him before in a previous episode, but that was a domestic terrorist. He was looking to find a way to remove Rome for pow from power. You know, all these people had this idea of what, you know, Judaism was and and when Jesus comes on the stage, radically changes 
entire view of everything. I mean, if you even ask the people, you know, who are practicing Jews to this day, you know, they're of the Jewish faith, you know, why do you not accept Jesus as the Messiah? They will say the exact same thing the first century Jews said was because they expected Jesus to be a political figure that would immediately, as soon as he came into, you know, prominence, the, the, the Messiah, I should say, would dispel Rome, and the fact that he didn't do that was grounds for him to not be the Messiah. I mean, over two millennia, that same reasoning still is prominent in those who practice Judaism. So here you have um, these 12 men, or I guess 11 because you got the betrayer there, um, mm-hmm. who... They gave up everything, Jesus. They gave up what comforts that they had in the first century, you know, the community that they had um, with people. That that's a huge thing that they that they gave up then, and and sacrificed all those things so that you know, because they were following the truth. They weren't just going, oh well. You know, this guy is doing great things, and I'm just going to abandon everything I know. Their entire culture centered around God being involved in their history. That's the Jewish people. Like when we talk about the Passover, when we talk about the Feast of Booths, um, and all those things, all those festivals, and those um, have to do with the fact that God actually worked throughout history. To, um, for the Jewish people. Whenever the Passover, they celebrate the Passover, that is a Jewish tradition of whenever, in the time of Moses in, in Egypt, whenever they were in bondage, in slavery, and basically God called them out of that. But before they called them out of that, they had, you know, God was giving Pharaoh a chance to let the people go. And they, you know, Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. So uh, basically a plague happened, and in order for that to pass over the Jewish people, bl- uh, blood from a lamb had to be applied to doorposts. That's where the, I, the very term for Passover came from. So I guess what I'm trying to say with all that is the disciples, these 11 men, they departed from some of the uh, traditions they adhere to growing up i mean these are you know young men in some cases like that had um their entire worlds changed and and i think a lot of times we don't take that into consideration like what they were sacrificing and and the the credibility of that you know i think a lot of times we just lose sight of that and 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 if I if I stop and think about it, and all these instances of like, if if they were not convinced of the truth of who Jesus said he was and what he said he was, why why would they betray their own history? Because in the Jewish tradition, you know, when you read the Old Testament, God, whenever whenever Israel departed from belief in the true God, he judged them. He brought judgment upon uh, the people of Israel. So these disciples of Jesus 
they knew their own history. They knew, like, if they departed from the faith, tradition, so to speak, then God was going to hold them accountable unless there was something significant that truly happened that convinced them that this guy wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a great philosopher. He wasn't a crazy guy. He was what he claimed to be. He was God in flesh. And I, and I think with those things in mind, with that perspective, but with what all they, and keeping in mind the fact that they died terrible, horrible deaths, with the exception of John, and even he was exiled to the, to the Isle of Patmos at one point also. I mean, these cats didn't, they weren't pampered whenever uh, Jesus ascended to heaven. They they suffered for their beliefs. They were ridiculed. I mean, you even have, go on a little bit further, you have Paul, who had everything. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He had political power. He had uh, influence. He had all those things. He's on the road to Damascus to get permission to put uh, Christians in jail. And what happens? He's has the Damascus experience and, and, you know, God shows up and blinds him for like three days. And, and then, you know, Paul repents and believes in Jesus. And then what does he do? He forsakes everything. He forsakes the fact that he's a Pharisee. He forsakes the fact that, you know, he has all this prestige and whatever and all this education goes and starts planting churches across the, the known world at the time. I mean, talk about life-changing. All these people experienced life change and were willing to die for it. Not because it was some sort of, oh, well, I have political influence. That didn't come to hundreds of years later. These guys died terrible deaths and were in prison and were in shackles and had feces like dropping on them because they were in the lowest part of the dungeon, like in Philippi, Paul and Silas. I mean, it is there was not you know sweet you know uh, scents and you know wonderful robes and all this prestige. They didn't have that. They they had terrible lives and a lot of times. Even had to deal with people betraying them. I mean, there's numerous times where Paul talks about like people who he thought were believers, but then betrayed him, and, you know, and left him, or, or whatever. You know, there's instances of that in the scripture. These guys did not enjoy the luxuries of life, but they were willing to sacrifice all that for the truth, or committed to the truth because. John says in the first John, he's like, I have seen, I have heard, I have, you know, talked to, I've traveled with Jesus. It's changed my life. One thing I would add to that, he's talking about uh, the first generation and how it, their lives were radically changed. And honestly, I can't remember if I mentioned it on the episode when we gave our testimonies, but that was probably one of the great clinchers that convinced me just how they gave up literally everything uh, in comparison to uh, some other religious founders 
Um, and there are plenty of modern examples, too, that people have witnessed. Um, you see uh, L. Ron Hubbard. He actually <laughs> had a letter written to a friend. And it actually says in this letter, uh, for those who haven't heard the name, uh, he founded Scientology. He actually has wrote, said in this letter to this friend, if you really want to hit it rich, just start your own religion. Um, Joseph Smith definitely had a lot to gain when he started the uh, Mormon movement. He uh, elevated himself. He said that, you know, I am the center of this thing. God has blessed me to be the one to give that final testament, the Book of Mormon, to you people. I'm God's spokesperson indirectly to this generation. So if there's anything that's founded where the head of the movement gets all the benefits, all the rewards... It's a cliche um, now. You hear about cults where if it's a male figure, he'll suddenly start having sex with all the female members and he will start amassing all the money in the group. But instead of giving it to, you know, charity or the organization in general, he'll actually start spending that on his, out of his own pocket when no one's looking. If the leader of the thing, the head of the movement, happens to benefit the most, that is when you've got to look out. And that's the complete opposite with the whole Jesus situation and the Jesus movement. Uh, as Zach said, you know, Jesus himself, he, Jesus always gets the credit for being the historical founder of Christianity as we know it, and that's not necessarily true. Christianity as a movement as we know it was actually founded by the first generation of followers who went into the world after his death. They didn't say, look at me, give money to me. Uh, prayed around for me, bow down to me, said everything about Jesus. And they said, I will give my lives for Jesus without, you know, going down the same trail that Zach did and wasting our time uh, by reiterating everything that he said so well. But uh, one thing I will also go on to, uh, we he just talked about the first generation. I'm going on to the following generations also. Um, there are 60 years between the events surrounding Jesus the th and the recordings of him on paper. I'm talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And that's actually uh, one big knock against the Gospels that you will hear very often, if not always, if you sat down and talked to someone who's done their research on this and they are not convinced that uh, the stories of Jesus in the Bible are legitimate. Um, I think of Bart Ehrman, a very, very famous name. He's actually a professor who teaches right here in North Carolina. And uh, he has actually started a class where he's basically broken down the New Testament and tried his best to convince all of his students every semester again and again and again, trying to convince them that none of this uh, by the story of Christ in the Gospels, none of this is actually true. He'll nitpick the text. He'll nitpick the way that people go at it, the bias that you see in the text. One of the things he will knock is the, the amount of time in between the events themselves and the writing of them. But I don't think that's necessarily required. Uh, it's, I don't think it's necessary for that passage of time to create a legend. Um, Bart Ehrman is a famous... Uh, he teaches right here in North Carolina, and he actually uh, bounces off uh, C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, and Lewis went on air on the radio during World War II and actually talked a little bit about this 
he gave what's now known as the Lewis Triumvirate. It's this argument that, based on what Jesus did and said, he was either a lunatic, he was crazy, uh, he was a liar, he intentionally deceived people, or he was Lord of all. Um, but without going down the rabbit trail of C.S. Lewis too much, Bart Ehrman's point is that he was actually, uh, actually bouncing off of Lewis to add one more point. Um, one that's been very convincing nowadays. Uh, he was basically adding one more list. He says, C.S. Lewis said he could be a, a lunatic, liar, or lord, or he could be a legend. And that's Bart Ehrman's own view is Jesus and his story, he believes, uh, actually developed over time the same way we play telephone. Um, you can pretty much pick up any any book uh, written about Jesus and the Gospels, and someone somewhere is going to throw out the metaphor of telephone. And so basically, um, if you have never played it, you sit in a circle of friends. It's mainly for kids, and someone will say something like, I ate the pineapple, and I'll whisper it into my friend's ear next to me. Then she'll whisper it into someone's ear next to her, and then he'll do it to someone next to him, and on and on. And by the time that message whispers from ear to ear until it gets back to me, the last person on my other side repeats what they heard me, the starter. And it I started with, I ate the pineapple. What that person next to me ends up with could be totally different based on what they, they happened to catch when that person whispered it to them. So the big metaphor is that Jesus and his story escalated over time. This villager told this merchant, and this merchant went and told that story in the next village over, and some of the villagers in that story repeated the story on and on. So by the time you get to written Gospels, the story has completely escalated to the point where you don't know what Jesus actually said or did. That's their argument. Now, what I would say to that, one, 60 years is still uh, plenty of time for people to remember Especially the younger ones who grew up and to be able to remember what actually happened in that time when Jesus passed through their town that day. But also the whole approach of uh, tradition preservation in that day was different from the game of telephone. And the, the intention of telephone is that the rest of the circle doesn't hear what the person currently speaking is saying so that it'll change. They they intentionally set that up so that you'll get a laugh out of that change. No, oh, it's it's like it's a it's a false, the false representation. It's a straw man, so mm -hmm. to speak. I mean, the reality of it is, is like there was plenty of checks and balances, as Robert was saying. There was plenty of um, of people who still, you know, they might have been young at the time, but they can remember. And not only can they remember, they would like, for instance. Um, let's say, for instance, like the body was discovered. That's a pretty big deal in Christianity. Like Jesus, you know, he was crucified, he was dead for three days, and then he bodily rose from the dead. He resurrected. Um, but if at some point within the that period of time, if somebody produced a body and goes, hey, look, there's Jesus of Nazareth. This is his body right here. That would have killed Christianity, and like immediately, and and the fact that no one, you know, points to that. If anything, the the one excuse that the 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 religious 
religious elite at the time say was, oh, well, the disciples, they stole the body. Really? Uh, it was under Roman guard. And it was in a sealed tomb. Uh, it's not happening. Um, you know, you got, uh, at, at best, I mean, after after Jesus was crucified, his disciples, before the resurrection, before they saw the resurrection, they scattered. They were afraid. Peter um, who swore up and down that he would not betray Jesus, goes and denies him three times. The same Peter, post-resurrection, was all about Jesus. And if this was some sort of political means or whatever, I'd be pretty sure to nip that in the bud and say, hey, look, don't put in the part where I denied the Messiah. Don't put that part in, because that really makes me look bad. There's numerous instances in the old, I mean, excuse me, in the New Testament, where the disciples look like idiots, not because, oh, just because they don't, they don't have the full picture of everything and they don't understand everything, you know. So they, like Peter, put their foot in their mouth. They make promises they can't keep. And if you were going to show that influence, if you were going to have influence and prestige, I wouldn't put that in. Unless, didn't unless you cared more about the truth being out mm-hmm. there and not caring about, oh well, you denied Jesus. Yeah, you know what I did, and it, I was wrong to do that. It, again, it just points to the validity of the text and the people who lived in that time. But as Robert was saying, easily have said, "Hey, look, there's Jesus's body." Yet they couldn't. No one could do that. Why? Because they actually rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And that's if there's so much evidence that points to that, then it's the most logical conclusion. It may not line up with naturalism, and it may not line up with atheism, and it may not line up with polytheism or whatever, but it lines up with what's actually true. Nice. And, yeah, like, uh, you know, the, the game of telephone so different from you know the way that they would handle those traditions uh you know the story would actually spread among the group it was a uh basically a, a it was something that the group actually had uh corporate ownership of so they would actually pitch in in the sense that uh and this is the way they memorized most of their stories was if someone was telling the story in the street jesus did this jesus said this and someone listening heard a detail that had was different from what they remembered or what they remember hearing before, they will actually call out the speaker and they'll work together to keep those those details and those facts straight so that the story is kind of held in a bottle, so to speak. Because we're dealing with a culture that did not know how to read for the most part. Those who could read had a very special privilege in learning how to and so those were the ones who could read the text for themselves. And so since the majority of the people had to hold on to these stories in some other way, they actually wanted to hold on to the story in a way that would be able to hold uh, true to the story without being able to read it from a page. And of course, you can imagine the early Christians living literally their lives for this would want those stories to be preserved to the utmost, down to every last detail they could manage to hold on to, because the fact that it did happen the way they said, when they said, how they said, 
could literally be the difference between whether or not they were dying for nothing. And so these people were clinging to these stories, wanting to be closer to Jesus himself through them since they couldn't physically touch him anymore. And so the stories of Christ were preserved for six decades when um, these, these people were growing and aging and just learning to interpret the stories deeper and deeper. And if the traditions are true, uh, the names of the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're all named after men who visibly witnessed these events themselves. Um, two, two people were relying on the testimony of someone else they were close to, then the other two were actually there for it. And, so, and the early church, uh, within a generation or two, they were all testifying that these four Gospels were written by men who were there or who knew someone who was there firsthand. So the stories in the Gospels, the authors themselves never actually get more than one step away from an eyewitness. So if that's true, then the very simple fact that they themselves are remembering everything that occurred, or they're talking to people in different parts of, of uh, Palestine who are able to corporately remember everything that happened. I especially think of Luke. He was never there, but he says in the very beginning of his gospel that he went around and intentionally did research. I think that's why his Christmas story is the longest in there. I believe he sat down with Mary and talked to her about everything that occurred and that she remembered before she passed away. And according to tradition, she was living with John in her old age, so he knew exactly where to go to find her. But you read those accounts of Luke's, it'll either be one particular individual who is there, or it'll be the corporate memory of a few townspeople. The thing that Luke traveled and learned these things isn't far-fetched because he's known to have traveled with Paul, the ultimate traveler of the entire New Testament. And so you see these stories, they're, they're well done, they're preserved faithfully, they're pronounced uh, with utmost precision, and they're done so in order to justify the deaths of the very people who are clinging to them. Because if they don't have these, these truths, if these stories are made up in any way, these people are literally pouring out their lives for nothing. So it was literally everything to them because it pointed to the person that they believed held the universe together. And that changed everything for them, and their attitude changed the world around them. And, and, and just another thing to kind of put in, in there also is the fact that um, within the first century with the Emperor Nero, Christianity became a persecuted uh, belief. Um, so there was a cost involved, a lot of people. Um, so their dedication to knowing the truth and wanting to follow the truth I mean, like, a lot of times we think, oh, well, you know, primitive man back then, well, they were just wowed by miraculous things, and they didn't really care about truth. No, they, they, they died for it. They, they were committed to the truth. A lot of our concepts, how we even do history, is based off a guy named Thucydides, which is like a 4th century, 3rd, 4th century uh, Greek historian. I mean, so it's like that's where we get our concept of like modern history, like how we do history is from that cat. So, uh, you know, to to think that oh well, 
were just mesmerized and willing to, you know, endure all these things for a lie. No, they were, they, if, if somebody at that point in time could have produced Jesus, Jesus's body or mm-hmm. proved that it was a hoax, he would have not just held on to blind faith. They would have went to where the truth was. And, and the fact that no one could produce the body, um, and, and then the following generations, you know, were still committed to the truth, um, I think is just a solid testimony to the truth of the fact that these people were just, they, they, they gave up everything, and they were willing to do whatever it took to preserve the truth, and they wanted to follow the truth. They didn't just want to follow a fairy tale because it made them feel good. They wanted to follow the truth, and if that meant die a terrible, horrible death, they would do it. They would do it because they believed, like, for instance, Paul. Uh, again, you, you know, you're looking at a first century uh, Christian who was executed under Nero. He had his head chopped off. Okay? This wasn't, uh, I mean, I, I've said it once, I'll say it again. This wasn't a guy who had prestige. This was a guy who had everything. Like, before he became a Christian, he had everything. And then following Christ, he gave all that stuff up. He counted it all as loss so that he could just know the truth and be dedicated to the true God that's there. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that we always have to keep in mind um, with that, with the the, um, first century uh, movement of Christianity. Because if you lose sight of that and, and you just think that it's all just a fairy tale and the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, yada, 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 and you fail to remember that, no, this is 1st century stuff. This happened. This is verified. You can look at historical uh, data. You know, the truth is there. And I think it's, it's, it's amazing, too. So if you, if you think about... Um... If you think about those stories, yes, they were 60 years kind of after the fact, but... I mean, these guys were scattered at that time. It's not like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess what I'm hearing you saying is they weren't collaborating on this. You've got these stories, which were kind of written independently, and the details between them are so in sync, even after a 60-year time span, and they were they were scattered in all different areas. You know, they they, they weren't collaborating. Is is that correct too? Yeah. yeah, I mean, now I mean they you know they they did have a consensus because they all were around, you know, Jesus's time with the exception of fourth Paul. But yeah, yeah, and uh, just to add to you know what you just said, the people scattered. And yet, when even after they started to circulate the, the documents, uh, the first couple of copies of those documents start to circulate. And as far as we know, there wasn't a single Christian that disputed any of the details in the books. Um, the only pe- the only times those are actually disputed are a generation or two later, written by people with very um, obvious theological agendas. I'm talking about the Gnostic movement, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole and go into all those Do details. It, Robert, just go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Do it. We'll I'll be down the rabbit hole. Bonus episode for another time. But 
all that needs to be known for that is the Gnostics were a very common heresy that Paul fought against tooth and nail because their beliefs were a danger to the truth of who Jesus was. And so what happened was they started to write false gospels that every scholar honestly knows are false unless they have they themselves have an agenda to try to elevate those. They will actually intentionally paint their own version of Jesus no better than if they were writing a fictional novel um, and basically make Jesus their own character and recount some events that are known in the actual Gospels and twist them in order to approve what they're not a vampire-slaying alien from the planet Zuku. Okay, let's say I write a fake biography. Let's. I mean, I'm so committed, I write a 700-page biography and get this thing published by HarperCollins, <laughs> and there's quote-unquote research with footnotes that I myself just, I just toddled down like J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> and all this research points to the fact that Zuku is a planet, and Ulysses, uh, Ulysses S. Grant found out the truth, and they had a secret cult that started the Illuminati, <laughs> I, mean, I, can, I mean, I can just daydream all day with my fingers clacking on a keyboard and end up with that many pages. That's if, awesome. If enough people believe this thing, I can just spout it out, and I can start my own little cult and start reaping their money and benefits from it. I know what That's our what next podcast is going to be about. <laughs> 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 well, and, 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 and to, to Robert's point, though, um, I don't know if you've actually read the Gnostic Gospel of Mary, um, but it, there's actually there towards the end of it, there's a discord between Mary and Jesus. And Jesus tells her, tells Mary that she, you know, not to worry, but she can become a man. And the reason why, that's a very Greek um, idea that men and women were two separate races and women were actually inferior. That's a very Greek um, thing, which, you know, um, going into Gnosticism is a very Greek um, branch of heresy. Um, and, you know, that is, you know, flat out against the, like, if you read scripture, if you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, how Jesus treats women is totally different. It was actually the women who, you know, were brave enough to go to the, the, the tomb first. You know, at that day and time, you know, women were, you know, second class citizens. To say that they went to the garden tomb first before the actual disciples does actually lends credibility to the gospel because in that day and time, again, you know, women were second-class citizens. And so if you're trying to you know, create a religious movement, and the first people that would go there would be your leaders, would be Paul and John and, and James and all these figures, but they're not women actually go because the gospel actually elevates women um i know that's that sounds counterintuitive to like the modern concept of feminism and stuff like that but the gospel actually did elevate because at that time you know there was the greek idea that women were a separate race and so it's like a man and a woman you know they're created in god's god's image and there's value and both have value that is, that was a crazy idea at the time. Not to, not to get on that tangent. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true, though. Yeah. 
Like, I think that's what angered a lot of the Pharisees more than anything was the fact that women would travel, you know, with Jesus and they were allowed to, to learn and they were allowed to read and write. And, uh, you know, they, they they followed with him and that was unheard of back in, back in those times. Mm-hmm. It really was. And uh, you just, you know, th- those biases just kind of seep into the text. Uh, well, I'm talking about, you know, just any text you can find out in the world. Yet Jesus shatters all these preconceived notions of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I really can't remember if I've brought this up before, but, you know, just one very quick example, trying my best not to chase any rabbits and stick to the point. But oh, chase those rabbits, chase those rabbits. Chase <laughs> maybe later. <laughs> But, you know, something in Roman culture that was common was if they had a female, a baby, and the parents did not want it in favor of a boy, then they would actually just chuck the little girl in the woods for the wolves to eat and feed on, and they would try again. Good heavens. Yeah. Yeah. Google Roman exposure of infants. It was a common (sighs) practice. Everyone knew about it. There's a letter that archaeologists found where a husband writ, wrote a letter to his wife. It was lying around in a in a deserted city somewhere. And they translated it, and he just says, if the baby's a girl, expose it. And he, I mean, it's just a line he adds casually to the bottom of the letter. You know, I love you, I'll see you later, signed husband. <laughs> but not the daughter. <laughs> yeah, not the daughter. And Jesus wow. gave us the modern concept of human dignity at all costs inherent dignity of a human being um, regardless of where you stand politically culturally we would all agree that that is a good idea and yet the romans just had this radically different concept of humanity before jesus the reason we take that for granted i mean we roll our eyes and say well of course human beings have value of course they mean everything um, of course, uh, the social structure has to be leaned towards justice because of human dignity. We're all piggybacking off a culture that's been listening to Jesus preach for 2,000 years. And so this culture that had never heard Jesus preach before, saying these things, bringing this idea into the world that we call the gospel, that the creator of all would stoop down and die to save some, because of the dignity of the human being, that's radically changed the way we approach everything. So any modern movement to improve the lives of someone that they consider marginalized, regardless of your opinion of some of their ideas and approaches to those things, every movement that rises up is because of this idea of human dignity that they're taking for granted because they've been listening to the, the, the ideas of Jesus and his gospel for so long. It's become such a part of our culture. Hmm. Hey, that's, that's excellent. And um, I think on that note, I think that's where we're going to wrap it for this particular episode. Um, Zach and Robert, what do we have uh, coming up on the next episode as we continue kind of diving into the life and story of Jesus? So the next is we're going to talk about um, his nature. And Mm -hmm. What that means is we believe in Christianity that Jesus was fully man, also fully God. And that's actually one of the telltale signs uh, of 
heresy, you know, like what do people say about Jesus? You know, hmm. um, they'll a lot of movements will either deny his humanity or they'll deny his divinity. So, you know, we've kind of talked about we've went actually it's 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 kind of fascinating. We've went through talking about the more concept of morality. And then we talked about the scientific ideas of intricate uh uh irreducible complexity and things of that nature. Then we moved to the moral uh suffering, both uh natural and um moral and how it even aligns with Christianity and now we move to who Jesus was you know what was it said about him as far as you know outside of the biblical text and then inside the biblical text now we're actually going to dig in to Jesus Uh, I'm going to tackle hopefully Lord willing I'm going to tackle his humanity Robert gets to tackle his divinity (laughs) there you go Robert sounds good all right. Well, I can't wait for uh, that. So uh, our listeners out there, definitely tune in uh, to our next episode um, and we'll dive into that. Um, but uh, yeah, Zach, uh, Robert, uh, thank you so much. This is this has been a great episode. I know I've learned a lot. So uh, yeah, thanks for chatting. Thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs>